Today we have a very special speaker. You know, through this series, 40 Days of Faith, through the slant, we've talked about uh, how to live a life that is spin-free, judgment-free, anxiety-free. And now Peter Evis is going to talk about being, oh gosh, Peter, I can't remember and I just listened to you, status-free. And I love it when Peter has a chance to share on Sunday morning. He has such a great tone. I really enjoy his content, but I've told him what I enjoy most is his accent. So let's welcome warmly Peter Evis today. Um, Yes, so I have a British accent. (laughs) And uh, who else has a British accent here today? You don't. Okay. Um, probably all of you can do really good British accents because of all the shows on like Netflix, like The Crown and stuff like that, right? You probably, you know, Peaky Blinders. Does anyone watch Peaky Blinders? Yeah, do do a Birmingham accent. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So I'm up here. Um, I'm like not on the official staff of the river. I'm a you know a long time member of the church, uh, but I like work as a reporter during the day. And uh, so this is not my day job. That's what I'm saying. Um, And uh, I often help out, um, often give the sermon. And uh, I've noticed that, like, when I get picked to do it, now, like, Charles is, like, you know, the guy who gives most of the sermons here, and it was his birthday. And so I think he wanted to go out, like, on Saturday night or Friday night and have a good time. So he's like, you know what, I'll get Evis to do that. (laughs) So on Sunday, take a lot of weight off my shoulders. I can just, like, relax and... Well, that's good. I'm glad I can be used in that way. So, um, and I like preaching. So we have uh, 40 Days of Faith going on, and that's our sort of uh, way of talking about Lent, which is the sort of lead up to Easter. And we're using the Sermon on the Mount as the sort of framework for looking at 40 Days of Faith this year. And the reason we're doing that, um, it's it's just a wonderful set of scriptures to be able to look at because um, the Sermon on the Mount kind of opens our eyes to the full extent of what Jesus can do in our lives, okay? There's lots of like, you know, when when you read the Sermon on the Mount and all the teachings that make them up, what you realize you have is like this incredible realist, Jesus, looking at our lives. He understands the pressures we're under, the difficulties that we face, um, and he's like, yeah, that's going to happen, um, but please, don't withdraw, don't pull back, don't retaliate, um, because I am with you, and I will help you find ways to stay engaged, to stay loving, uh, to stay refreshed, even as the onslaught of life is happening, okay? That is the promise of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and it's a powerful one. It's something that we'll always need um, at any point in our lives, and so it's just a wonderful opportunity to dig deep. So we've used the Sermon on the Mount to look at, um, previously to look at how we can live life without judgment, um, without spinning, meaning like, you know, trying to make things seem better than they are and like talking about ourselves in that way. And on last week, Charles gave a very powerful talk on um, being uh, free of despair, okay? So there's a lot there. Uh, if you want to go back and dig in and see what we've done before, the, the study guides, which we spend a lot of time on, are still available through the app, the River app, which you can download from iTunes and uh, the Android um, uh, you know the the Google Play place, and you can you can you can find that pretty easily. The study guides and look at what we've covered. So um, that's what we're doing, and uh, I wanted to start right now with our scripture, which is Matthew six verses one through eight. 
Watch out. Don't do your de good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth. They have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth. That is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need before you ask him. So, um, what is the problem that Jesus is identifying here, okay? Um, obviously, it's like doing things just to be seen to be doing them, okay? It's like status for the sake of status, okay? I am giving to charity. Look at me giving to charity, right? That would seem to be, uh, you know, that, that is what Jesus is talking about. Um, and, and he also mentions hypocrisy. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. And so there's sort of even more serious thing going on here, perhaps, is where people who are, you know, very mean or very uh, are hurting other people in some way are covering that up by doing acts of charity to sort of conceal what they're really up to. That's suggested by that passage, and it's very good that Jesus is calling that out. Um, and so, you know, you could read this sort of as... Um, perhaps, as a, uh, a sort of admonition against, um, you know, um, giving to charity and not being selfless as you give to charity, okay? Uh, and that's, that's a fair reading. That's an accurate reading. Um, but if you're like me, you know, you, you look at this and you're sort of saying, well, you know, looking around me today, I'm talking about how the Bible relates to our, our life today. I'm thinking, like, how serious is this? Right? I mean... Yeah, I agree. It's a little off when people do good things and they want to be seen to do good things. I mean, that's kind of annoying. But but if you can get people to give to charity by promising them some spotlight for a few minutes, like why wouldn't you do that? I mean, <laughs> I mean, who's in the who's in the not-for-profit business? Do you know what I mean? Like, this is a good way to like get people to give. You know, if somebody wants to give hundreds of millions of dollars to a hospital um, and they get their a thrill from having their name on the new wing, like. So what? I mean, we've got the money. They can't, pl they can't spend it now. We have it. You know, let's go on. And, uh, and so that's like, you know, that's, that's, one, you know, that's one thought I had when I, when, I, um, when I read this passage. And I just wanted to mention it in case any of you are having it too. But I also wanted to mention it because I think that Jesus is actually going much deeper here. Okay? I think he wants to grapple with a problem that we all deal with all the time. And I don't think that the intent of, you know, um, this teaching is to make sure that every time we give to charity, we're completely pure in our motives, okay? I mean, that would be nice, but I don't think we're ever really going to get there. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the big life-diminishing problem that Jesus wants to address here? And to get to that, I think we have to sort of step back and look at what the Sermon on the Mount is really up to, okay? 
And what, you, what the Sermon on the Mount tells us, if you look at it in total, is that we have this often, you know, this difficult life, this difficult world that we live in. There's so many demands are put on us. There's so many things we have to navigate every day. We have our needs. Other people have their needs. And often these things are in conflict. And we have to sort of stay sane and fair and, and engaged as we kind of move forward, even when things get really tough and we're so tired, okay? So that might mean, like, even this coming week, we have a lot to think about with our jobs. Our boss needs something. We, we may sort of get a, a bill in the, you know, through our email and think, oh, my goodness, I didn't know it was going to be that big. We may be really worried about whether or not we'll be able to keep our job and, uh, or our coworkers or the people that we oversee. And then, like, the mortgage comes in. And then, like, we've got to think about our kids and where they're going to go to school. And, oh, my goodness, my marriage. And then the wider family, my parents, you know, and the supervisors and the bills and everything, you know. Have I stressed you out? Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's how life is, okay? If we're real about it, there's all these competing needs, all these tensions, all these pressures building up. And a lot for us to navigate. So how do we respond? Now, like Charles looked at last week, one way you can respond is by giving up. Or we can just fall into the trap of despair. That's one way of opting out. But another way we can deal with this is to find ways to comfort ourselves, to make us feel like we've mastered those demands and those tensions, that we've somehow gotten on top of them. And one way to ease that tension is to get the approval of others, to seek status. Um, and it, it feels good, doesn't it, when people sort of recognize something we've done or they give us respect or when we get a position and we've, we've won it and we've done well to get there. And it feels good because um, it feels like our place in the pack is secure at that point. You know, and, and we know this because, like, because of Facebook, right? We you know, like, <laughs> it's like, I mean, I've tried to turn off all those little things on your screen that tell you when you have notifications, right? Who's done that? Yeah, it's worth doing because, like, you know, it's kind of the thing you become dependent on. You start looking for them. You're like, oh, they like my photo. But like, um, and, and it feels like we're included. You know, there's less of a chance that we'll be ignored. We matter. And therefore, it feels like we're sort of like, we're mastering all the sort of tensions and personal rivalries and difficulties that we have. You know, if we have all this sort of, if we have this status and it seems secure, then somehow we've, we've got our place in the pack and it feels good for a while. Now, this is how society has always worked, I think. I mean, it's like, that's why we talk about things like respect. You know, if I don't get respect, I get angry, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, and it will always exist. We, we, will, we are social animals. We need to know that we're, we live in a pack, we live in the herd, and we are always thinking about where we stand in that. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. But here's the issue. As we become dependent on the approval of other people, and as we seek more of it, it becomes the thing that drags us the, away from the, from, the, from the values that we really care about, okay? So as we pursue status and respect and approval, um, it can draw us away from things like, you know, the underlying things that we really care about, like being an authentic person, being generous, being a good friend, standing up for what's right when everybody else isn't. Those are the sort of things we really care about and we want to spend energy on, but we may not if we're distracted by, you know, finding, you know, the approval of others. 
And Jesus in our passage is telling us that he sees that temptation. He knows it exists. He knows how tempting it is to do something just to get the nod of approval from somebody else so that we will have our place in the pact. You can see that in the words he chooses. He says we showcase our good acts to be admired by others so that everyone can see them. So as we pour energy into that sort of, you know, getting that attention, we'll have just less left over for, you know, being generous or compassionate, friendly, authentic. You know, those are the sort of qualities that build full lives and healthy relationships, and we'll just have less energy less left over for those. So that's the status trap that I want to look at today. Okay? Is that clear? Okay. All right. Um, and one of the things we might have to deal with right now is that social media has made the status trap an even bigger problem. Um, or maybe it hasn't. Maybe, maybe like Facebook and, and Twitter and, and Instagram just make it much easier to measure <laughs> how much we crave approval and the respect of others. You see, um, you know, social scientists can now sort of, they don't see everything. They see data that allows them to see what we really think and, and what we need and what we, you know, what, what our public posture is versus our, you know, our private beliefs and our private behavior. Um, and they just give really interesting insights. And so what I've been doing the last week is just looking at all of your Facebook feeds and, um, you know, Twitter and Instagram and working out who's really, no, I haven't been doing that. Okay. Please don't unfollow me. Please, please. <laughs> Please still be my friend on Facebook. Um, I don't judge you on social media, ever. Um, but somebody else has been doing that. Um, <laughs> broadly, not with you guys. Maybe you were in this, I don't know. But um, anyway, there's a guy called Seth Stevens DeWittowitz. He wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, last year, and he looked at the gap or the difference between our public postures and our private selves. And he's writing a whole book on it, so I think I can't wait for that to come out. And he noted some interesting dichotomies. He said this, for instance, on Facebook, men seem to underplay their interest in recording artists considered more feminine. On Spotify, Katy Perry was the 10th most listened to artist among men, beating Bob Marley, Kanye West, Kendrick Lamar, and Wiz Khalifa. But those other artists all have more male likes on Facebook. Okay. Interesting. So, hands up, any, any guy here who's a closet fan of Katy Perry? <laughs> this is your chance to show... Yeah, there you go. So the well done. This is, this is the gospel at work, you know. <laughs> yeah, she is. <laughs> Don't ask me for any insight. Okay. <laughs> Another one that uh, Stevens DeWittowitz found. The Las Vegas Budget Hotel Circus Circus and the luxurious hotel Bellagio each holds about the same number of people, but the Bellagio gets about three times as many check-ins on Facebook. Yeah? yeah? You know what check-ins is? It's like when you check in a hotel, you go, I just checked in at Bellagio. No, but like, um, no, I've never done that. No, um, and uh, I've never been to Las Vegas. Um, and then this one's kind of more serious. Sufferers of various illnesses are increasingly using social media to connect with others and to raise awareness about their diseases. But if a condition is considered embarrassing, people are less likely to publicly associate themselves with it. Irritable bowel syndrome and migraines are similarly prevalent, each affecting around 10% of the American population. But migraine sufferers have built Facebook awareness and support groups two and a half times larger than IBS sufferers have. That's kind of interesting, okay? So that's 
that's kind of the public-private thing. Um, so how do we untangle this? How do we avoid the status trap? And I want to go to our first practical suggestion for today. So, you know, we at the River, like, kind of like to talk about faith in theory, but we much, much more prefer to talk about how faith actually works in real life, okay? How you could take something from today and walk out the door and put it into practice straight away. And that's why we have these things called practical suggestions, um, we love this part of the sermon, okay? So my first one is bring your status anxiety to God, okay? Now, let me step way back here and describe uh, what I'm doing with this, okay? So I want to just make it clear to everybody here today what the amazing thing, I mean, what, what an amazing thing, what amazing things can happen when we have faith in Jesus, okay? So... I kind of try and describe it in a way that might seem fresh or like new to us. So um, let's say we have our lives and we start to give God more space in our lives, okay? And as we do that, he comes into that space. He sort of dwells there. And it's like this whole new ecosystem starts to grow and it becomes entwined with our everyday existence. And... As that ecosystem of faith grows, it provides us with the resources to do the things that we might find difficult. You know, things like, you know, a difficult week at work or, you know, a lot of things. And, you know, instead of the word ecosystem, I could just say, like, all the cool things God does to make life fuller and relationships healthier. <laughs> but I, I wanted to use ecosystem to give this picture um, of this encro encroaching kingdom, so to speak, and, and to show you that the faith really is alive and that it produces real fruit that we can enjoy every single day. And so if we give space to God and this ecosystem grows, um, you know, as God becomes part of our lives, God will take ground. He'll take serious ground. He'll take territory. And in that territory, it'll be like this wonderful forest springing back to life you know, like after a fire or something. So that's how this ecosystem works. And, and so, it, and in real life, it can sort of like actually start to be, to, to be put into practice like this. So we might sit down, we might just want to read one of Jesus' teachings. We might want to read the teaching that we're looking at today. And we soak it in, and if you're like me, you might be like, well, I don't fully agree with that, or I actually don't quite understand where Jesus is going with that, or I don't actually understand it. Um, but if we take the risk and just talk to Jesus about his words and listen to what he might have to say in return, that ecosystem extends itself and gradually provides more and more resources for a fuller life and better relationships, right? That's, that's what I'm talking about. And I know that if you sort of like step outside of it for a second, it can seem sort of crazy. I mean, like, I'm asking you to put that ecosystem right at the center of your life. And that, that can seem very risky. I mean, you're like, really? You want me to talk to God and have an idea of what he's saying? And you want that? to be the centerpiece of my life? Come on, that seems way too risky. And I, you know, sometimes when I look at it that way, I'm like, oh my goodness, what have I done? No, but, 
But then I look at passages like this, and, and then you realize that this is what faith is. It's this conversation that we have with God. That's where faith really grows and dwells. I mean, in this passage, Jesus himself tells us that faith only becomes truly useful and wonderful when we see God as someone who listens to us and knows us and responds to us. That's what he's saying in this passage. Don't just treat God as this sort of like kind of monolithic entity you just like babble at. No, he's a living person, a living entity who knows us and listens to us and responds to us. And what do you do with that? You respond to it yourself and you're like, okay, I'm here. Let's talk. Um, And I just love how that comes out of this passage. When you pray... Don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need, even before you ask him. Okay? Can we let that last line sink in a bit? Because it's kind of powerful. Your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. I'll say it again. Your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Does that line make you feel peaceful? Who feels more peaceful now having read that line than before? Yeah, it's sort of like Okay, there's sort of an unclenching going on. There's a sort of like, oh, I feel like I just can relax internally, right? Something's happening when we know that God knows exactly what we need even before we ask him. And so what what I what I feel, I'm trying to sort of like describe what I I feel when I when I read that line. It's kind of like Jesus is saying like this is how God sees your life right now. He's like, this is God speaking, okay? So just hear me out. I'm trying to like <laughs> tell you what I think he's, what he's doing. He's like, Peter, I see this going on in your life. I see that going on. I know you have all this going on. I know that you feel this, and I know that you're dealing with this, and I know you're struggling with this. I don't miss any of that. I see it all. And I'd love to talk about it. And you can just spill your guts. I have all the time in the world. You know, I'm God. I'm beyond time. So just sit here and talk to me about everything that's going on. And as you do that, expect me to want to get to the bottom of things. Because I really want to do some powerful stuff with what you've told me. That's what I, that's what I feel and hear when I, when, I, when I see that line. It's kind of like when you get together with a, a good friend you haven't seen for a while and you catch each other up with what's been going on, you laugh, you reminisce, you might have an argument about something, you complain, <laughs> you banter. But then at one point in the evening, you know, one of you turns to each other and says, dude, how are you really doing right now? How are you actually doing right now? And I think that's what God does when we sit down with him. He's like, look, I hear everything. I get it. I get it. I get it. But tell me, what's really going on right now? 
Jesus says, your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. And I just wanted to dwell on exactly for a second. I think it means two things at once. It means God knows everything we think we need. <laughs> okay, so he knows all the things that we think we need. But it, it also means that, that he knows exactly what we'll, we need that will make our life better and fuller. So there's two things, all the things we think we need and the things that he knows will make our life more abundant. And because he has that grasp of our needs, because he knows our needs so deeply, he, above anyone else, is in the perfect position to talk about the challenges that stem from those needs. Okay, because it's when we start to like pursue our needs and our needs bump into the needs of others or there just isn't time to get our needs met or whatever, that's when the personal tensions arise. That's when we start to feel tired. That's when we start to feel defeated. And it's that place that God wants to dwell, exactly there. So he will stay there and he will stick with us um, and he will help us sort us out what's important and what's not, what's good and what's not, and what will make us happy over the longer term and what won't. And he will be there and help us sift that stuff out. And as we engage with God on all of that stuff, that social angst we feel, the thing that makes us seek status, the approval of others, um, which makes us dependent on likes on Facebook or whatever, we will feel much less need to go chasing after that. And then, once we feel less social angst, we'll be so much more free to pursue the things that we always wanted to pursue in the first place, our true values like generosity and compassion and open-heartedness and, and fairness and, you know, being, you know, standing up for things that people won't stand up for. Um, and and, and that's, that's how it can work. And that's what, that's, what, uh, that's what can happen in that private place with God. Yeah? But I still feel like the, and this is natural, so I'm not like singling anyone out, um, that there is some very specific residual doubts about this idea that we can have a conversation with God, right? I know that's probably something that people are like, how do you do that? I mean, but I can't, I, I would like to be able to just sort of like, you know, kind of ignore it, but I can't because Jesus in this teaching tells us to do it. He says, you know, shut the door, get in private and pray to God and, you know, he knows your needs and so expect him to respond and you need to respond. And so you're probably thinking, though, well, that's so, I mean, I don't even know how to start doing that. You know, how do I know if I'm even hearing from God? And let's say I try and I don't hear anything. And what about all those people who think they're hearing from God and go off and do really crazy things? You know, on that last one, let me just say this. There is absolutely nothing God will ever say that will even slightly suggest that we should harm somebody else. Okay. That's never going to happen. If somebody thinks they hear that, it is not from God, okay? It's completely impossible because God is only good, right? So if somebody goes off and does something crazy and, and, and bad because they think God told them, it was not God, okay? The other thing you ought to know is that if um, you think you heard something from God, hold it lightly. This doesn't mean that you, it's, it's sort of the only truth in the room and that you have to fight for it, whatever. That's not what I'm saying. It's just very informative and helpful, but it's just another opinion that you can put into the mix. So you need to hold it lightly as well, okay? 
What about the other two reservations? How do I know if I'm hearing from God? What if I hear nothing? And let me just give you some comfort on that front. I'm not saying that you're going to hear this audible voice from, like, that corner of the room, okay? That's almost certainly not going to happen, okay, when you pray, okay? Instead, what, you know, Christians have learned over the years is that there is this sort of inner dialogue that God joins. It's like what the Bible calls a still, small voice, and it and, and that voice becomes part of our thoughts. It becomes obviously part of our prayers. And it's kind of there all the time. And yes, we can expose ourselves to it um, at certain times to hear it more clearly. And we can respond to it. And then we can even listen again. Because is, there is a lot of back and forth in it. But don't expect something that is super distinct all the time, okay? Um, you know, it's, he does speak to us. But like, don't sweat. Like the de- 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 you know, don't try and make it so like, I'm not going to do it in case I'm absolutely certain it's there, okay? That, that would sort of trip you up. So, but just be relaxed about it. Just say, okay, I think I heard God. I think that was God. And sometimes we may not hear him. But that's okay because what we think we hear is probably not going to be hurting us or anybody else but we ought to try it as jesus suggests over the long run because it's the heart of faith actually faith itself i would argue is having this very healthy line of communication with god so we may as well give it a go right if that's faith we may as well try it right yeah okay so here's my second and uh, final practical suggestion create a zone of gratitude at work now um who laughed at that yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, I want to try and apply all that we've learned today to our jobs because I know that um, our workplace is often the hardest place to put faith into practice. It's also the place where we might get most tangled up in the status trap. Um, and it's often the place where we're most dependent on the approval of others, you know, and, you know, a lot of our life might resolve around, you know, getting a certain position. Uh, or not losing a certain position. And, uh, and so you know, our jobs are difficult in that respect, and they're also complicated. And if you think about it, our jobs are quite different from something that's you know, definitively good, like giving to charity. Okay? So you know, let's take a situation like Jesus points to in this passage where like, we find ourselves you know, seeking too much attention for giving to charity. Okay? So we do what I say. We spend some time with God. He reminds us of the scripture. We soak it in. We have a back and forth. Um, and what God will probably do in that conversation is say, look, he'll remind us of all the things about the charity which are good, inherently good, the work it does to help people, and we'll soak that in, and then we'll sort of rediscover the goodness of that charity, and then we'll sort of think how great it is to be able to give to that charity. And then um, we'll sort of understand, we'll realize how silly it was to sort of make ourselves front and center, and then we'll sort of won't do that anymore. Because, you know, giving to charity is, is a good thing. And why would we, you know, why would we sort of get in front of that? I mean, just let them have the glory, so to speak. But our jobs are sort of different, right? Because they're not all good, right? <laughs> um, there, there is a lot of difficult stuff that goes on at work and unpleasant stuff. And so I can't stand up here and say to you guys, uh, discover the inherent goodness of your jobs. But I can. If I say, dig around for a bit and look for the things at work that are inherently good and rediscover those. Okay? So that's what I'm saying here. So, um, so 
let's say tonight, okay, you've got everything packed for tomorrow morning to go to work and you're dreading it or you're not really looking forward to it because, you know, you've got all sorts of tasks to do and you probably aren't going to get them done. You're probably going to get in trouble. Someone may not show up. Somebody's already emailed that they're sick. You know, a, a boss has already emailed wanting this, this, and this, and it's Sunday. And you're like, oh, my goodness, this is just not enjoyable. How do I discover the inherent goodness of that? So drill down a bit, I would argue. I would say, like, work with God, sit with God, and sort of look for the things um, that really are good about going to work. And one might be just the simple joy of doing a task well, right? Who knows that, that joy of, like, just getting a job done well? Yeah, it's a, it's a good feeling, right? You're like, yeah, that's a pretty nice brief. <laughs> you know, you sort of send it off and like, you know, you don't do that to get praise or to trumpet yourself. You just sort of think, oh, that's a, yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> I'm pretty good at this. Um, that feels good to do a job well, not, you know, not to get glory, just to do it well, right? The inherent goodness of doing a job well is definitely something we can experience, I think, right? Um, Spending other people's money, that's fun, right? Like, so if you're like, you work for a company and you're on a project and they're like, you know, this is your budget, you're like, what? I'm going to spend that. I'm going to like make sure we get a return on that and um, make sure it affects people's lives and stuff like that. And so, you know, there's lots of ways in which we can rediscover the sort of simple joys of doing a job well. That's one thing we can do. Uh, helping others do well is also something that we can rediscover the joy of. I mean, teamwork can be really challenging, but it's also really fun. So if we have people that are struggling or people that are fun to work with, but sometimes not, or like, you know, <laughs> you know, we can set ourselves the goal of bringing a certain harmony and a support to those people. And that actually is really, really, you know, a wonderful thing to be able to do. That's, the, that's one of the great things about being able to go to an office and having a social network there and helping people all advance together, okay? So we can go into work on Monday with a lot of gratitude for those things, right? So we feel a lot of personal gratitude for the tasks we have, for the people we'll see at work, um, and we'll sort of keep that in our heads. And then once we're there we'll be able to also extend that gratitude to other people by saying, that was really well done, I really appreciate this, I really appreciate that, you know, without being sort of like overdoing it and being kind of weird or creepy about it. But like, you know, and we can sort of, as we feel gratitude ourselves and we extend that gratitude to others, over time, what will happen is this zone of gratitude will extend itself. It's be like a beachhead in your workplace. And as that happens, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, a lot of the difficult things will get a lot less difficult. A lot of them won't go away. Some of them will because of what you've, how you've responded. But, but um, some of them will stay there. But you will have this zone of gratitude, and it will make life a lot easier. And it will mean that you can spend your energy on that, not on doing things just to gain the approval of others, not on doing things just to be seen to be doing things, not staying late just so the boss can see you stay late, all the things that we do, right? Um, and then, you know, over the longer run, work will be a lot more bearable and, in fact, enjoyable. 
And as I keep trying to point out today, Jesus tells us that this is possible in our passage. And he shows us it's possible because he tells us that God is available to talk to us as we walk that walk. Okay? He says it here. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you.